0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, there is a new urgency in getting weapons to Ukraine as the Russians intensify their missile attacks in the South and East. And the diplomatic shuttling between Ukraine, the U.S., and Russia appears to be marking some new firsts. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in person today inside the war-torn country. We'll have the latest. And in a Sunday exclusive, we spoke with Ukrainian Prime Minister Denys Shmaihal at the end of his trip to Washington, then confusion and chaos over mask mandates on planes and public transportation being lifted by a federal judge. Plus what's taking so long getting vaccines for the very youngest? We'll like check that. in with former so FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. In with inflation sky high, interest rates creeping up, and the stock market showing some stress, are we looking at more economic turbulence ahead because of the war in Ukraine? We'll talk to the head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says her party is running out of time to get their together. We'll ask her what she thinks could save the party's majority on Capitol Hill. Plus, Republicans face more internal turmoil after the House Minority Leader criticizes former President Trump in a leaked audio tape. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning. Welcome to Face the Nation. We have been told repeatedly that the next few weeks in Ukraine will be crucial. So the urgency for more support for the country is no surprise. But the official announcement of a top secret trip on part of the Biden administration officials as we go on the air has not been confirmed by the U.S. But word is out. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Ukraine. Charlie.
2: Good morning, Margaret. It came as a surprise, to say the least, when President Zelensky dropped that the U.S. Secretary of State and Defense Secretary would be arriving here today, saying it's no big secret. It's no big secret what tops the agenda, more weapons, and fast. In a marathon press conference held deep underground in a subway station, Pausing at times for passing trains, President Zelensky struck a defiant yet thankful
3: tone.
2: Let me stress, he said, all the signals, steps, terms, and amounts regarding U.S. weapons, all of this is improved. And for that, I am grateful. It may be too late to save Mariupol. Ukrainian officials say Russia launched airstrikes today on the besieged steel mill, sheltering soldiers and civilians. This video of families who've been hunkering down in sprawling bunkers for months was reportedly taken three days ago and released by the Azov battalion. It cannot be independently verified. President Zelensky warned Russia against the slaughter of remaining resistance fighters. If our men are killed in Mariupol, he said, Ukraine will withdraw from any negotiation process. To the west, at least six cruise missiles slammed into the Black Sea port city of Odessa. City officials say a strike on an apartment building killed eight people, including a mother and her three-month-old baby. Russia's defense ministry said missiles destroyed a facility storing weapons supplied by the US and Europe. Russian howitzers opened fire in the Donbass region in Eastern Ukraine. Despite these forces making some territorial gains along a 300-mile front line, Ukrainian troops have repelled the worst of it at a significant cost to the Kremlin, according to British military intelligence. Russian television broadcast live pictures of President Putin attending an Easter Orthodox midnight mass. With the war he started raging on and the deaths of innocent civilians rising by the hour. President Zelensky said he is open to a direct meeting with President Putin in order to end the war. In his Easter address, he said, our souls are filled with fierce hatred for the invaders and all they've done don't let that rage destroy us from within. Margaret.
1: Thank you, Charlie. We turn now to CBS News national security correspondent, David Martin. Good morning. Good to have you here, David. Uh, President Zelensky in that press conference said weapons transfers have picked up in their pace from the United States, but he also said he expects Secretaries Austin and Blinken to arrive with something more for him. Do you know what that is?
4: Well, weapons are going into... Ukraine today. I asked and was told that there are no weapons on the particular train taking uh, Austin and Blinken into uh, Ukraine. Um, but there's clearly this race on to arm the, uh, the Ukrainians in time for this coming battle. And the U.S. is shipping 90 of these 155-millimeter howitzers into Ukraine. But that's only half of what the Ukrainians need. The Ukrainians have their own artillery, mm-hmm. but it's a smaller caliber. So the Russians, uh, excuse me, the U.S. Are, is asking all sorts of countries who have that smaller caliber to provide it to the Ukrainians. But these countries are not like the U.S. with these vast arsenals. When you ask them to give up their artillery, that's a big ask. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the, the race to arm. Uh, the Ukrainians with heavy artillery is probably going to decide the outcome of this coming battle in uh, the east. And of course, it looks like the coming battle in the east is going to decide the outcome of the war. So high stakes.
1: And and time seems to be of the essence there when it comes to what the United States has admitted. It is transferring to the Ukrainians. um, The types of weapons continue to change are they still parsing what will provoke Putin? You know, are they still sort of saying there are things we cannot do?
4: They, they certainly give every weapon system, uh, you know, a clear scrub for will this cross his red line. The problem is nobody knows what, that what, is. what his red line is. Um, the, the Russians sent this diplomatic note warning don't send quote unquote sensitive weapons because they will produce. UNPREDICTABLE CONSEQUENCES. WHO KNOWS WHAT THEY CONSIDER A SENSITIVE WEAPON. PROBABLY NOT AN ARTILLERY PIECE. Mm-hmm. BUT ON THAT LIST OF WEAPONS PROVIDED LAST WEEK, THERE WAS SOMETHING CALLED THE PHOENIX GHOST TACTICAL UNMANNED AERIAL SYSTEMS. AND I'M READING IT uh, OFF a LIST HERE BECAUSE LAST WEEK WAS THE FIRST TIME I'D EVER HEARD OF THIS THING. IT'S A CLASSIFIED PROGRAM. WE CAN'T SHOW A PICTURE OF IT BECAUSE there THERE IS NO PICTURE. BUT THIS IS A kamikaze drone, which flies out, looks around for a target, finds one, and dives on the target to kill it. Now, the U.S. has already given uh, the Ukrainians about uh, 700 smaller uh, switchblade kamikaze drones. These have a bigger warhead. These have a longer range. Will these be the weapons that cross Putin's red line? Who knows? But there is a dangerous dynamic going on here, which is the worse Putin does, the more dangerous he gets.
1: And if he gets backed into a corner, as you have said, Mm -hmm. the question is, what does he then do? The U.K. has said that the Russians haven't really fully reorganized and uh, resupplied. Do Ukrainians have an advantage at this moment?
4: Well, they certainly have a fighting chance. Uh, Just uh, uh, the battlefield rule of thumb is the attacker needs a three-to-one advantage over the defender, and uh, Russia tries for a seven-to-one advantage, and they just don't have those kind of numbers. Beyond that, we've been talking for weeks about all the shortcomings of the Russian military. Poor morale, poor uh, command and control, poor logistics. Those are not the kind of problems you solve in a few weeks. An American defense secretary once said, You go to war with the army you have. Right. And the war that Russia is going to go with in eastern Ukraine is essentially the army that went to war in northern U- Ukraine and which failed to take Kyiv. Just to give you yeah. one example, mm-hmm. they're trying to encircle the Ukrainian army. Right. To do that, some units have to <laughs> travel 100 miles in order to get wow. in the rear of the Ukrainian army
1: mm-hmm. so got in, not a in the general.
4: offensive against yeah. Kyiv, they overran their supply lines at 60 miles.
1: David Martin, great analysis. Thank you. Sure thing. President Biden met with Ukraine's prime minister, Deniz Shmyhal here in Washington. We sat down with the prime minister just before he returned to Ukraine and began our conversation with the situation in Mariupol.
5: Mariupol now is surrounded by Russian's army. Some thousands of our soldiers, some thousands of civilians, together with them, uh, it's mostly women and children, are hiding in the basements of these enterprises. Soldiers are protecting these civilians, but quantity of Russian soldiers, quantity of Russian techniques is times times more than our soldiers. But now We have heard that Russians begin to bomb, bombarding this enterprise, these shelters where our soldiers and civilians are saving from their bombs. So there are terrible atrocities, terrible war crimes on the Mariupol territory.
1: There have been satellite images of mass graves around the city. Absolutely. Um, Your government has said Mariupol might be a red line. And because of the atrocities diplomacy may not be possible. Are we at that point? Has that line been crossed?
5: Mariupol is like symbol of uh, brave Ukrainian soldiers and civilians who two months protect their city from Russian invasion, from Russian atrocities. So this is like symbol for the world, and I think that it will be red line for the all civilized world, not only for Ukrainian people. So we will protect our country, we will protect our cities, and Mariupol will stay till the end because of our soldiers say that we will stay here and protect our city till the end.
1: I heard you say that it might be the worst catastrophe of the century. So do you believe after doing something like that that Russia can negotiate in good faith?
5: Russia done many atrocities and many war crimes in Ukraine. But we understand that this terrible war could be finished only uh, on the table of negotiations. With the uh, presence of our partners, of uh, world leaders, of uh, civilized countries, but we should sign uh, some papers about finished finish of this war.
1: President Biden says he will go to Congress next week and ask for more money to provide weapons to Ukraine. The last time that happened, it took three weeks for Congress to sign off on funds. Do you have three weeks to wait?
5: We count every minute, every hour, not every day, not every week or months, because every minute and every hour, soldiers, civilians, children, women are dying. Because of this, we need faster decisions. But United States, European Union, civilized world make many faster decisions. And we're so much grateful for this. We need more support.
1: But specifically, is it medical supplies you need most? Is it heavy weapons? Is it just cash?
5: We need weapon, medical support. But many countries support us because they... Uh, take our uh, injured soldiers. The cash in sense of uh, our budget is very important for social and humanitarian responsibilities of our state uh, to our people.
1: And that's four to $5 billion a month
5: Ukraine needs. Yes, because- Did you
1: get pledges for that here in Washington?
5: Yes, we have many negotiations with uh, J-20 countries, with uh, International Financial Organization, IMF, World Bank. So all of them approved this amount. But now, after liberation of some territories of Ukraine, we need also support by finances, by technologies for mine cleaning activity, because more than 120,000 square miles are under mining and bombs Some of the families going back to their house, opening the wash machine or freezers, garages, basements, everything is mined by Russians. And many people, civilians people, are dying now on the liberated territories because of this mining of their houses.
1: The UN Secretary General says he's flying to Moscow next week to meet with Vladimir Putin. Do you think this is any kind of diplomatic breakthrough?
5: I'm not sure, so many leaders of countries, of uh, civilized world, international organizations try to have this negotiation, but uh, the, I think the Russian Federation and uh, Putin are not interested in this negotiation, they are interested in other things. They are interested in genocide of Ukrainians, they are interested in creation of migration crisis in Europe and in the world, they are interested in creation of food crisis. Energy crises, I'm not sure are they capable to hold these negotiations in proper way.
1: Here in Washington, did you receive promises of more military training for Ukrainian soldiers?
5: We have support from our partners uh, for military training right now. So we are training, we change standards, we uh, study new technologies for our soldiers and our army. So everything is on its way.
1: Everything's on its way. Absolutely. Do you believe the U.S. wants Ukraine to fight to a stalemate, or to actually defeat Vladimir Putin to actually win?
5: I personally think that it's impossible to win the war uh, with uh, in in the battle with uh, nuclear uh, state. We may protect democracy in Europe on the our continent in the world, but. I think that this war should be finished uh, when we uh, clean our territories from uh, Russian occupants.
1: Are you saying that a full withdrawal of Russian troops is the only way to end the war?
5: I think yes. If uh, Russians will leave territory of Ukraine, if we will uh, have uh, guarantees of safety for our country from our partners, If we will have possibility to recover our country and uh, using uh, Russian's frozen uh, assets.
1: There's a proposal in Congress to seize some of those frozen Russian accounts and use them to repay damage, to pay for damage in Ukraine. Did you get guarantees from the U.S. that they're looking at doing that?
5: We have these negotiations with United States, with all of our partners. This is very important international issue and task and goal to find solution how to take these frozen uh, assets and uh, finance recovery of uh, Ukraine in this case. And for future, it should be like standard. If some country will uh, make aggression against another democratic countries, it should pay for this absolutely for everything.
1: So the $600 billion you said it will take to rebuild Ukraine, you think that can come from the yachts of oligarchs and bank accounts that the U.S.
5: Absolutely, as a minimum. For now, we count all of these damages, which uh, and and destroying infrastructure, destroying residential uh, building houses of the people, or the energy infrastructure, uh, enterprises infrastructure. losing of the GDP for our country for many years because they destroy part of our economy. So all of this should be paid by Russia, absolutely.
1: Mr. Prime Minister, thank you for your time today.
5: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Our full interview can be seen on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be back in one minute to talk to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. So stay with us. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. There was a lot of confusion last week over masks, mandates, and vaccines for the very youngest. Our Mark Strassman has more from Atlanta.
0: No longer enforce the federal mandate. Requiring
7: masks in all U.S. airports and on-board aircraft.
8: With that mid-flight announcement, the masks came off. Even passengers stuck in the middle seats applauded.
7: I would say hallelujah.
8: A Florida federal judge appointed by former President Trump had ruled the CDC's mask mandate was unlawful. The Biden administration, appalled, appealed. The BA-2 sub-variant is still spreading. And despite new COVID cases and hospitalizations rising nationally, millions of Americans will celebrate going barefaced again.
3: There should be no mandates, period. None. But there are
8: still, and local guidelines prevail. Los Angeles County and New York City still require masks in airport and for all mass transit. I just wish we got a clear answer on what, you know, what we're gonna do with this whole mask mandate. It just seems confusing. Confused and alarmed, immunocompromised Americans and the parents of young children now surrounded by ever fewer people wearing masks. No vaccine exists for 18 million American kids under five. Colorado Governor Jared Polis pushed the Biden administration, criticizing the FDA's lack of action and urgency on a vaccine for young children that would give parents more peace of mind and help put the pandemic behind us. Pfizer's working on a three-dose vaccine for young kids. Moderna has a double-dose alternative that could seek FDA authorization in the next week. And for frustrated parents, both options could become available
1: sometime this summer. Margaret? That's Mark Strassman in Atlanta. We go now to former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you, doctor. Um, Good morning. I want to get to kids in a moment. I've got a lot I want to ask you about there, but let's start on the masks. Um, put the legal argument aside. As a medical professional, when you get on a plane, are you still going to put a mask on?
3: I wear a mask when I get on a plane while I'm boarding and also while I'm getting off the plane. I think those are the two points where you're in a congregate setting where there's poor air circulation. Those really are the risky um, Uh, venues. Those are the risky points in your journey. When you're up in the air, when you're at 10,000 feet, there's pretty good air filtration on a plane. So I don't feel at risk at that moment. So I take my mask off while we're flying. That's been my practice since this mandate got lifted. That's probably what I'm going to continue to do so long as prevalence remains where it is right now.
1: And to be clear, when you say mask, you mean an N95.
2: Yeah,
3: look, I wear a high quality mask. I wear a KN95 mask. I think if you're wearing a poor quality mask, a cloth mask or a procedure mask, that's not a level three procedure mask. You're probably deriving a lot less protection than what you perceive. Omicron is an airborne pathogen at this point. It's spreading through airborne transmission. A cloth mask isn't providing a measurable degree of protection. So if you yourself want to protect yourself from this pathogen, you really need to wear a well fitted, higher quality mask.
1: Big picture, according to HHS, we are still in a public health emergency. Are we yet at an endemic, endemic phase of this?
3: No, I don't. I think this year is really a transition year. I think this is going to be the year when this becomes more en, more of an endemic illness. It's not going to be a defined point in time when that happens. Um, but w- what, what's going to happen is this is going to settle into more of a seasonal pattern. I do expect prevalence levels to start to decline. We may be peaking right now if you look at the wastewater data, hopefully over the summer, through the summer. We have pretty low prevalence of this infection and we're going to see mm-hmm. it reemerge in the fall. The question is, what reemerges? Is it a new yeah. strain of Omicron? And that's going to drive decisions around the vaccine.
1: And fall makes kids vaccines even more timely. We note the passing of former Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, who died yesterday at the age of 88. He was a frequent guest on this program during his seven terms in the Senate. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. More with Dr. Gottlieb and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. So stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's also on the board of Pfizer. So, Dr. Gottlieb, when I heard the mask mandate being lifted on transportation, I thought of my one-year-old, who I don't want to put on a train and I don't want to put on a plane because I can't put a mask on him and he is not vaccinated. What are parents of the youngest Americans supposed to do? Not travel? Not travel.
3: Look, this is a really difficult situation because we're effectively saying that people need to take matters into their own hands in terms of protecting themselves. We're no longer applying mandates on the entire population, but but asking people to individually assess their own risk, but not giving everyone the tools they need to do that, particularly young kids who now are going to be made vulnerable in these public settings. But there's no vaccine available for those kids. And I know a lot of parents have been waiting a very long time. There's kids with health conditions that can't get the benefit of a vaccine that could provide them some baseline immunity that could, pro- that could protect them from severe disease. And I think we need to try to make a vaccine available to those children very soon. In terms of where this stands right now, you know, I'll take each application in turn. Pfizer, as you know, submitted about four months ago the data on their two-dose vaccine. The FDA has had that data for about four months and has had the benefit of reviewing it. They deferred making a decision on that vaccine. They didn't felt, feel was, it reached the level of efficacy that they had prescribed, which was a, a threshold of 50 percent effectiveness of preventing symptomatic disease. And so Pfizer is now testing a third dose to see if that will boost the effectiveness of the overall regimen. And the data from that should be available very soon. Moderna released top-line data on their vaccine on March 23rd, their two-dose vaccine, and the reports are, the public reports are, they're going to file this week. My expectation is that FDA is going to hold an advisory committee in early June, to discuss one or both of these applications. That gives the agency about six weeks to review the Moderna application, which is consistent with how long the agency has taken to review these Mm -hmm. applications. It took them five weeks to review Pfizer's five to 11 application. And I'm hoping that Pfizer will have all their data in, in time, to also be considered at that advisory committee. But just in closing, you know, if the Moderna application is ready and the Pfizer application is not, I think the FDA would and should consider it separately.
1: Well, that's an important point to make because there was reporting, as you know, in Politico this week that there were conversations within the Biden administration worrying if you authorize one vaccine before the others, that it'll confuse parents. But with adults, one vaccine was authorized and made available before the other. So uh, is that flawed thinking? Do you know if there's any truth to that reporting?
3: Well, look, I don't, I don't agree with the thinking, but when I just look at the timeline that's laid out here, if you believe that they are going to hold an advisory committee in early June, that's been long rumored. That that meeting was supposed to be planned to consider a bivalent vaccine, the Omicron specific vaccine, and the, the consideration of the childhood vaccine is going to get latched onto that meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if you consider that timeline, that gives them about six weeks to review the Moderna application, and I believe that Pfizer is going to have their data in in sufficient time to also meet that deadline. Um, six weeks is about what the agency has been taking. They've been reviewing these applications in four, four, four to five weeks having an adcom does add additional time. It's going to add an additional week or two. The final point I would make is the question of why are they bringing it before the advisory committee? And that raises the broader question here of whether or not the agency is going to consider vaccines that don't reach their 50 percent threshold approvable. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason they deferred, at least in part, the reason they deferred the Pfizer vaccine previously is it didn't meet that threshold. So this is going to be controversial before the advisory committee. That's why they're taking it before that adcom. I hope there's a favorable outcome for one of both of these vaccines. But I do expect there to be some pushback among those members.
1: When we spoke back in January about uh, where Pfizer was with its submission, you did make the argument that it might be advisable to make just two doses available uh, while they looked at a third because some protection is better than none. Is the FDA thinking that way? You you mentioned a 50% efficacy rate. If the data isn't meeting that benchmark, should these vaccines still be approved?
3: Well, the the data won't reach that benchmark. The Moderna data is about 40 percent in the data they released. The Pfizer data, the previous data was about 40 percent as well. We'll see if the third dose provides additional protection on top of that. But we know these vaccines aren't working very well against Omicron at preventing symptomatic disease. I do believe from a clinical standpoint there's value in getting baseline immunity into children, even if you're not going to fully protect them against symptomatic illness, If you could protect them against severe disease and hospitalization, that provides a lot of value, especially children who are vulnerable, who have health conditions. So I think for FDA to authorize these vaccines, they're going to have to come to that view as well, because these vaccines are not going to meet their pre-specified target of providing 50 percent efficacy. We know that right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's possible that the third dose of the data, uh, the third dose of the Pfizer vaccine will reach that benchmark. I don't think that's going to be the case because I don't think there'll be enough symptomatic cases in that data set. To evaluate,
1: this is an important conversation. We're going to continue to have it and watch what the FDA does very carefully. Thank you very much. We turn now to politics, the midterm elections. We are just over six months away from them. And the question is will Democrats be able to hold both the House and the Senate? Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren joins us now from Boston. Good morning to you, Senator. I know you have some strong thoughts on the matter. I read your op ed this week. Uh, And you warned Democrats could face disaster because they've promised more than President Biden has delivered. Why do you think Democrats may lose the majority? Look,
7: Democrats need Democrats win when Democrats are in touch with the American people and what's happening to them. Today, we've got people who are in the checkout line for groceries and having to pick what they're going to send back because they can't afford to pay for it. We've got millions of people across this country who say they're not ready for their student loan payments to resume, that they simply can't manage those loan burdens. We've got millions of people across this country who can't fill up on a tank of gas so they'll be able to get to work this week. As Democrats, we need to deliver. We need to hit costs head-on, and we have the power to do that. We've got less than 200 days left, though, And instead of looking backwards, let's look forward, let's get done what we can get done for the American people who elected us, for the American people who are counting on us.
1: Well, Republicans would agree with you, inflation is a a big problem. It's one of their chief attack points on the president. You just mentioned student debt. I know you believe the president can just erase it essentially through executive orders. But both the White House and Speaker Pelosi have said that he may not have the authority that Congress would have to act here. Have you persuaded the White House otherwise?
7: Uh, look, we know that the president has the authority to cancel student loan debt. And the best way we know that is because President Obama did it. President Trump did it. And President Biden has now done it repeatedly. The power is clearly extending the need. deadlines, you mean there. No, no. They have canceled. Remember. They have canceled that. They've both canceled it for people in certain categories entirely, but they have also canceled the interest that is due on people's student loans. They haven't deferred it. They have canceled it because the power of of cancellation is already in the statute. President Obama, President Trump, President Biden have all done it. And understand, on cancellation, this is something the American people want. And it's something that tens of millions of people need. Forty percent of the folks who are handling student loan debt don't have a college diploma. Mm -hmm. These are people who tried, but life happened. Pregnancy, uh, they were working three jobs, their mom got sick, they had to move to another city. And now they earn like a high school grant, but they are trying to manage college loan debt, and it is crushing them. But at the time of... It's a racial equity issue.
1: Well, I'm, ahead, I'm aware with why this is um, a priority for you, but the concern is at this moment, it could also be inflationary in an environment where there already is high inflation.
7: No, it is not inflationary. Not paying student loans has been baked in for three years now. But keep in mind, as President Biden himself says, the way we deal with inflation is not by making people poorer, the way we deal with inflation is we attack high prices head-on, mm-hmm. price gouging. We straighten out the supply chain so goods can come into people. We attack it head-on, not by trying to make people poor. Cancelling student loan debt is something that would be good for people all across this country and, more importantly, good for our economy overall.
1: You also, in your op-ed, talk about a number of uh, Build Back Better agenda items, Child care, universal pre-K, but all 50 Democratic senators do not support that. The president himself has acknowledged his problem. He he talked this week just about being able to get to the number 48. Uh, Are senators Manchin and Sinema changing their minds here? Do you have any different math?
7: So, look, there are a lot of things on which we all agree, and there are things on which we need to continue the negotiations. Let's just start, actually, with price gouging. You know, I think all the Democrats are on board that these giant companies should not be not only passing along costs and inflation, but actually adding an extra dollop so they can pad and expand. But you think this can get done
1: in the next few weeks before people leave Memorial Day? We've got, look, we've
7: got nearly 200 days before the next election. We need to be out there fighting. And what we need to fight for are the things that touch America's families directly. People are counting on us and we can't just sit back and play politics. We need to be in the fight on behalf of the American people. And that means people who are struggling with student loan debt, people who are Mm -hmm. struggling with high prices, people who are worried about this pandemic. We deliver then that's what democracy is about. We can face that election in November with our heads held high.
1: A few weeks ago, Senator Angus King said if you have a Franklin Roosevelt policy agenda, you need Franklin Roosevelt majorities. He just comes back to that premise of we don't have 50 Democratic votes. So am I hearing you say Democrats just need to get caught trying? What you're hearing
7: me say, first of all, is that not everything has to go through Congress. We picked the example of student loan debt. That would affect about 43 million people. That matters. It would affect them directly and affect their families. It's also the case that there are many things that we agree on. We can attack corruption head on. I've got a bipartisan plan that says members of Congress mm-hmm. cannot trade in stocks, they can't own individual stocks. That's something we should be able to agree on and move forward and help restore just a little faith yeah. that when we take actions in Congress, it's not to pad our own pockets, it's actually on behalf of the American people. And. Look at all the other pieces Mm -hmm. that the American public tells us they support. For example, a minimum corporate tax for these giant corporations that pay nothing. We're all in agreement on that on the Democratic side. Now, sharp difference with the Republicans who want them to continue to do that. Well, we will see. Exactly what we should be pushing forward.
1: Well, the president need
7: to be in the fight.
1: Well, and and the president's out there talking about his accomplishments. We'll see if he takes up your advice. Senator Warren, thank you for sharing it with us. Democrats aren't the only ones facing challenges within the ranks this week. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy remains on the defensive, denying that he'd considered urging former President Trump to resign after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But audio tapes reveal him talking about doing just that. Our Robert Costa reports.
10: I've never asked the president to resign. and never thought he should resign.
6: The House Republican leader's second denial came Friday night after leaked recorded phone calls verified McCarthy telling colleagues <laughs> shortly after the Capitol attack that Mr. Trump had acknowledged bearing some blame
10: for it. He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened.
6: The conversations were released by the authors of a new book, This Will Not Pass, who reported on the internal party discussions. I've had it with this guy. McCarthy said he was considering asking Trump to resign in light of potentially being impeached in the Senate. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should resign. I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. McCarthy had called the Times reporting totally false and wrong. That is, until the audio was released, catching McCarthy flat-footed. But Trump told The Wall Street Journal on Friday that McCarthy
1: remains an ally. And we want to turn now to Robert Costa. Uh, Bob, is there going to be any consequence for this? Inside of the House Republican
6: conference, his rivals are watching this episode very closely. But based on my reporting, McCarthy... It's in line to hold the speaker's gavel. Should Republicans win the majority? Democrats still believe they have a chance, though, of winning the majority, and they're watching this all very closely. They would still like to see him speak to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th.
1: Any chance of that?
6: At this point, McCarthy has defied the committee at every turn, a very little chance of that, but the committee still probing other House Republicans as well.
1: Well, Bob Costa, thank you very much for your reporting and analysis. We'll be back in a moment. We are joined now by Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, which sets monetary policy, including interest rates, for the 19 countries that use the euro as a currency. Madame Lagarde, welcome to the program. Thank you so much and good morning. Uh, Good morning. Good to have you back here in Washington. Uh, We talk often about inflation in this country, but inflation is also at a record high in Europe. Um, The Federal Reserve chair has talked about raising interest rates in this country next month by as much as half a percent to try to get control here. Why do you think you can wait until the summer?
11: I believe that um, we share the same resolve, uh, which is to tame inflation, which is to use all the tools that we have to do so. But we're facing a different beast. When I look at my core inflation, which is inflation taking out the most volatile elements, such as energy and food, my core inflation is at 2.9%. Inflation in Europe is very high at the moment. 50% of that is related to energy prices. Pre-Ukraine war, it was already climbing, but the Ukraine war has dramatically increased those prices. So we have to use the tools and the uh, sequence, Mm -hmm. which is appropriate depending on the sources of inflation. If I raise interest rates today, it is not going to bring the price of energy down. So we have embarked on that journey of gradually removing accommodative uh, monetary policy. So we will be uh, interrupting the purchases of assets in the course of the third quarter, high probability that we do so early in the third quarter. Mm -hmm. And then we will look at interest rates and how and by how much we hike them. But we have to be data dependent because of the sources of inflation that we have at the moment.
1: You have said uh, energy, high energy and lack of confidence could be persistent here. Does that indicate a high degree of concern that we could be tipping into a recession? And can you raise rates without that risk?
11: It's the trade-off that uh, central bank governors face at the moment. Uh, We have to be guided by our mandate, by our objective, which is to restore price stability, which we have all defined as roughly 2%. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's the mandate. But at the same time, we have to do so in a sufficiently uh, well-sequenced, well-calibrated, for us in Europe, gradual way so that we don't induce recession. We currently are facing, you know, winds that reduce growth and increase inflation. So we have to navigate between the two guided by the mandate of price stability and bringing inflation down.
1: Mm -hmm. You've referenced the war with Russia um, a few times here, and we've all been learning just how dependent Europe is on Russia for its supply of fossil fuels. Germany warned an embargo of Russian gas could cause economic output to drop 5%, and yet there are calls for total embargoes on Russian gasoline. I mean, is, is this practical? And how much is the politics impacting this?
11: You know, I think we have to be guided by the purpose that we have. And the purpose we have is to reduce and possibly cancel the financing that is provided to Russia to finance the war, the unjustifiable, illegitimate war of Russia against Ukraine. So we have to uh, adjust the policies whether it is sanctions, whether it is uh, uh, de-swifting the banks, whether it is cutting out the oligarchs from uh, their assets and their sources of financing, whether it is reducing and eventually uh, cutting out uh, supplies from Russia in such a way that we actually reach the goal we have, which is Mm -hmm. to reduce financing. If we were to take abrupt measures that would induce an increase of the price of oil or gas around the world, from which the Russians would eventually benefit, then that would not be the right policy move. So we have to do it in sufficiently smart and subtle way so that we actually achieve the goal that we have, which is to reduce the financing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the Europeans together are looking at. The plan to completely boycott coal has been adopted. There's a lot of work going on concerning oil, concerning gas, and, you know, there will be more stories to tell a bit later on. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in this country, there's a lot of debate around um, how much the government is to blame versus the central bankers for the inflation that we're experiencing. The U.S. spent $6 trillion on COVID relief, $2 trillion of it, um, on President Biden's watch last spring when the economy was already recovering. Do you think some of this spending in the U.S. exacerbated inflation? Because Europe didn't spend like this.
11: We spent, we in Europe spent less in stimulus. And I think we spent differently. Uh, we spent pretty much half as much as what the U.S. government spent on stimulus and heating up the economy. But we also spent it differently because I think the focus was predominantly on keeping the jobs, not necessarily sending the checks. And as a result of that, um, people who managed to keep their jobs alive while not necessarily, you know, going to work because COVID stopped everybody from going to work at some point in time, they had their job. So when COVID was over, they went back to their job. Mm-hmm. So I think that the the, the the labor market that you have currently in this country, in the US, which is incredibly uh, tense, where you have, you know, a lot of jobs that are not uh, filled, where you have plenty of vacancies. We don't have that in Europe at the moment. And the current situation you have on the labor market here in the US is clearly contributing to possible uh, strong inflation and second round effect where prices go up, wages go up, short supply of labor, wages continue to go up and that feeds back into prices. That, that's one of the differences between our two economies.
1: You've been in key positions throughout a number of economic crises. How dangerous is this moment that we are in right now?
11: It is a difficult moment, but it's one where um, very interesting phenomenon developed. If I look from my vintage point at Europe, The Russian aggression against Ukraine has produced three key results. It has resurrected NATO. This is Easter Day, so I'm not, not, you know, fantasizing here, but it has resurrected NATO. It has united the Europeans more than ever. Mm -hmm. And it has strengthened a nation, Ukraine. The price of that is terrible the debt, yeah. the destruction, the devastation. And, and we are all concerned and all want mm-hmm. to help. But this is okay. quite an interesting development. And we have to be united and yes. resolved to actually address the situation together because to- there has to be solidarity.
1: I have to end it there because we're out of time. We'll be back. And that is it for today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Ukrainian Prime Minister Denise Shmaihal, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, CBS News Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa, and European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.
9: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondry Plus.